I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today our guest is Jim Kennedy, a partner at Hunton Andrews Kurth in Richmond. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. David, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. We're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, about your background, how you came to practice M&A law. Secondly, about your work with public REITs. Then we'll talk about several cases in which the Delaware Court of Chancery has interpreted non-compete agreements in the last few months. Then about how you and your firm are finding return to office. And then finally, what you do outside of work to decompress. So with that, tell us about yourself and how you came to practice M&A at Hunt. Well, David, I wish it was more interesting, but I think it boils down to the fact that I've wanted to be a lawyer since I was a kid, then took a series of purposeful steps to give myself the best opportunity to become a lawyer, and then I became one. I was born in Orange County, California, moved here to Richmond when I was, I think, four years old, and otherwise was raised here. And once I realized that professional baseball player and Power Ranger were not going to be viable career options for me, I pretty quickly shifted into wanting to become a lawyer. Actually, I think I really wanted to go into politics even back in middle school. And as a middle schooler, I viewed a law degree as kind of a prerequisite for entering politics. So growing up in Richmond and the surrounding area, we have lots of history, good and bad, but we get a good level of exposure to it going to Jamestown, Williamsburg, Charlottesville, all that. And every statesman you tend to encounter almost always had a law degree. So in my brain, I connected those two and thought, well, I got to do this if I want to get into politics. So I didn't know what kind of lawyer I wanted to be, but I just kind of focused generally on making that a reality. And it took a lot of different types of steps to do it. To give myself a little credit, I really kind of hustled my way into the gig. I went to a high school outside of my zone because it had kind of a magnet specialty center for leadership, government, and global economics, I think it was, which I thought law schools would like. And it was interesting to me. I transferred colleges to give myself the best resume and the best education to try to get into law school. I transferred law schools so I could try to practice in the area and in the geographic area I wanted to practice. Really kind of a North Star for me was just trying to accomplish that goal. And, you know, it's tough each time you're leaving different groups of friends behind and having to reacclimate, but this is what I wanted to do and kind of did what I had to to, to make it happen. And you were in law school during the great financial crisis, which was obviously a very, very challenging time for law students to find jobs and in some cases to hold on to jobs. How did you approach going into private practice then? And how does your experience resonate now as you look at law students and young lawyers who are facing a somewhat uncertain environment? I think one of the great gifts that I received was having to go through that because you're right. I think I was doing callback interviews when Lehman Brothers collapsed. I guess that would have been September maybe of 2008. And I was a class of 2010. My peers in 2009, a lot of them got their start dates deferred and oftentimes never actually got to start. And the class after me just didn't really have much of any sort of summer program. So it was pretty tough to get into the jet stream of bigger legal practice in particular. And what that gave me from the get-go as a summer associate, as an associate, and now, 
I am legitimately thrilled to be here. And, and I mean that in every way possible. I'm thrilled to have a job. I'm thrilled to have a job in law. I'm thrilled to have a job that reflects what I was studying to do. And I think that really lended itself to becoming a sought after associate. I wasn't just, you know, I was, yeah, I said yes to everything. I worked very hard and I like dealing with complicated deals and questions. These types of hours, as everyone knows, can be a real grind, but it's 10 times harder, I think, to do those things if you have a bad attitude or think you're entitled to be doing something else. I've been so thrilled to have gainful employment because of that experience and that kind of, frankly, fear going through that experience in law school. I think it's really helped me throughout my whole career. And it just makes this whole endeavor a lot more pleasant when you're viewing it from a standpoint of appreciation instead of entitlement. As a mid-level associate, you help represent Hunt and Williams in its merger with Andrews and Kurth, which is a, a really unusual experience to have you know, for a lawyer, period, but especially for an associate. Talk about that experience, what it was like, what you learned from it. Sure. It was obviously a truly unique experience. I think I was the only associate kind of brought over the wall until the merger was announced. And I think I had a different perspective on it being the only associate in the room because obviously you know those types of mergers are super complex, you know, you're have these two partnerships that have both been around for over 100 years and I think the primary complication there is trying to make the financials and partner compensation work. As a I guess I would have been a sixth or seventh year associate at that point I wasn't really focused on that cuz it didn't impact me. I was more focused on hey are you know what's the culture going to be like are these two groups getting along and I got a lot of comfort being involved in that process seeing it up close. A lot of times these law firm mergers are done cuz they have to be done or they don't work out very well. I think we were super lucky because we found the right partner at Andrews Kurth Kenyon and getting to see the negotiation and the back and forth and meeting everyone or a lot of people ahead of time, I took it upon myself to walk to every associate office I could find after the merger was announced and kind of calm people down because, you know, it's always nerve wracking when mergers are happening and saying, look, I think just from my perspective, I saw very similar cultures, very personable and easy to get along with. And I think we ended up being really lucky because since that merger happened, aside from changing the domain name of our email, it feels like nothing really changed. You should got more great colleagues to work with. So we got really lucky. And also, it was fun as an associate to get access to all the partner comp info I didn't have before. <laughs> that was the best part. How did that experience change or affect how you approach being an M&A lawyer and just evaluating the situations your clients find themselves in? That's a great point that I'm not sure I really affirmatively thought about or understood at the time. But you're right. Lawyers don't really get to experience it too often being on the business side of the merger. And I think it definitely made me more sensitive and have more empathy, especially when you're dealing with if your clients on the sell side and you're having more day to day engagement with individuals who are helping the merger take place and they may or may not have jobs lined up or be able to continue in their existing jobs after a deal closes. I think it definitely made me more sensitive to that. Being on that side of things made me just all the more cognizant of it. Because I think it's easy to not view the human side of these things. We're pretty in the weeds on deal terms and contract drafting. And it, it's if you don't take the time to think about it, you can forget the human impact that arises from M&A practice. And that 
was a good reminder, kind of partially through my career, not to do that, because I think that would be a mistake. Talk a little bit about your and your firm's REIT practice. Our firm's REIT practice on the M&A side is completely, I think, a credit to our capital markets practice, who have been involved with lots of publicly traded REITs for the two or three decades that's been a possibility. And a lot of times it can lead to great opportunities cross-selling within the firm for our M&A team to step in. And especially in the past six or seven years or so, we've really done a pretty good number of multi-billion dollar public read M&A transactions. And a lot of those connections come from existing relationships from our capital markets team. And then as we've built up that practice on those, we've also gotten some outside opportunities just because we've been able to do a handful of these public retails lately. And I think we now are seen as having the expertise to help others out as well. Obviously, the biggest challenge in those, you know, the tax considerations loom really large with public read M&A just because of the unique tax attributes and characteristics of a REIT. And one of the reasons we're able to do that so well at Hunt is because we have what I think are truly as good as it gets in terms of tax lawyers and, and retax specialists. So I wanted to mention them as well, just because I think they're a core part of our public read M&A practice, because without them doing a lot of that tax legwork, that's really the core expertise and competency I think any firm needs to be able to successfully do those deals. Is there a deal or two in the read sector that really stands out for you that you've done in recent years? I find each of them pretty unique just because of the relatively recent history of REIT M&A. To me, it's really interesting. 30 years ago, all of these, I'll call them REITs, they weren't REITs at the time, but you know, the commercial real estate industry is relying exclusively on private capital, able to kind of operate under their own terms. And then all of a sudden, you know, their access to debt financing dries up in the early 90s and their only source of capital is going to be the public markets. And you have this great mixture and this forced marriage of the private real estate background and kind of the more governance culture of Wall Street with all of the disclosure, transactional, structural rules. And it's been, I think, really interesting to see those two histories come together. And obviously, as you know, REITs have become more prevalent and consolidation keeps happening, the governance is increasingly kind of conventional and, and more mainstream. But I really enjoy seeing that clash of cultures and getting buyers who maybe haven't done a lot of M&A comfortable with the fact that they're not going to be able to do but so much property level diligence and they're not going to have a lot of opportunities to get out of the deal once they sign one. So I really enjoyed seeing the personalities that tend to present themselves in the REIT industry and dealing with those in a more typical public M&A context, I think is really interesting. Because it is still a very personality-driven sector and REITs tend to be much less institutionalized than many public companies, which is a, a tension that, as you said, plays out in a lot of REIT transactions. Yeah, because I think because of that, a lot of times you're going to have buyers who think they're buying real estate, not a public company. And then on the sell side, you know, that type of property level work seems kind of like overkill and isn't practical because sellers, I think, especially because of those personalities that have arisen from it, really view their companies as not collective real estate assets, but they think they're bringing to the table leadership of the management team, you know, intellectual capital experience, all that, in addition to just the actual book value of the assets that they're bringing. So that tends to be something that needs to get ironed out pretty early on in the process, just so everyone's speaking the same language and agreeing as to what type of transaction we're trying to get done here. Is it a real estate deal or a public M&A deal? And sometimes it, it takes some time to 
get both sides comfortable with the fact that we're doing a public M&A deal. In the last three or four months, there have been three cases from the Delaware Court of Chancery on non-compete agreements. Talk a little bit about those cases and the lessons you draw from. So it's been interesting for me because my exposure to the ins and outs of non-competes historically is typically limited to the sale of the business non-competes and less often on the buy side, reviewing restrictive covenants in existing employment agreements that our buyer client will have the benefit of going forward. And all of a sudden, you look up and you've got not just Delaware courts, but you've got all sorts, any manner of legislative, judicial, and regulatory entities starting to take a much closer look at these non-competition, non-solicitation covenants, even in the sale of the business context. All of this I view through the prism of this proposed FTC rule that would essentially ban all employers from imposing non-compete agreements with their workers. And yeah, there's an exception for sale of the business non-competes, but it's only available if the person who would be subject to that sale of the business non-compete owns, I think it's at least 25% ownership. So you can have situations where you have a 20% shareholder or co-founder who only owns 20% getting tens, hundreds of millions of dollars from an M&A transaction. And then if this rule goes forth, they're able to go next door and start up the same business all over again using those funds, which would be interesting to see if that rule passes kind of what the unintended consequences of that are. So that's in the background. And then you have those three cases in Delaware that you're talking about. And I think, and I'm guilty of this, I think before this line of cases, it was easy to think, especially in the sale of the business context, we'll write as broad of a non-compete as we think we can get away with. And then worst case, if we've overstretched, the courts will step in and blue pencil it for us and we'll get the maximum benefit that we will be able to get. But these recent cases have really thrown that for a loop. The overarching theme are a couple of issues that have come up lately. It was only a couple months ago, there's a case called, I think, Hightower Holding versus Gibson back in February. And it was a case where the Chantry Court denied an action seeking enforcement of restrictive covenants that were, according to the agreement, subject to Delaware law. But in fact, the agreements were entered into in Alabama. The worker at issue was based in Alabama. And ultimately, the Chantry Court decided that Alabama law should be applied instead of Delaware law, which had a completely different set of restrictions on restrictive covenants, which ended up resulting in a blanket rejection of the restrictive covenants in the agreement. When I mentioned earlier about being careful, we weren't as cognizant of exceeding your grasp. There's a case back in October, Kodiak Building Partners versus Adams, where I guess the end result was unique because you had a selling shareholder take a new position only a few dozen miles away from the target company, where ultimately the scope of the non-compete was founded to be more than was necessary to protect the interest of the buyer. And so despite the fact that it wasn't as though the competitive action was itself was outside of the protected interest of the buyer, but the fact that the buyer had tried to restrict the employee or the selling shareholder, preventing them from doing more than was necessary to protect their legitimate business interest, they just struck the whole thing down and refused to blue pencil it. So that's been something we've really been keeping an eye on. These string of cases, you can't exactly say, all right, well, here's what we've learned. We can put together a form restrictive covenant and be comfortable that the term, the scope, and the other mechanics around it will acceptably pass muster if it's ever challenged in court. 
In reality, all these mean is that you have to spend a lot more time thinking about the specifics of these restrictive covenants and making sure you're not tempted to rely on the court blue penciling these. Because if we thought maybe they would have before, it's been made very clear over the past few months that's no longer a safe expectation. So if you overreach putting together those restrictive covenants, you're going to end up in a position where you get nothing. So it certainly was a reminder to spend a lot more time on tailoring the terms of those covenants up front and not kicking the can down the road and assuming you'll get help if you've asked for too much. So to some extent, does this mean, especially in a sale of a business context, which is where you are most likely to see this issue, that you have to make a decision as to which higher level employees you as a buyer are going to focus on getting non-competes from, maybe rather than worrying about a lower level employee who has a chunk of equity that's of a relatively modest value, so that you think a court may be skeptical of that non-compete to begin with, so why worry about it? Whereas there are a certain number of higher level employees who may be getting a lot of money out of a sale of a business, and you as the buyer are very focused on what they're doing post-closing. And so you try to craft much more precise non-competes for that set of senior executive owners. I think that's right. I guess it may be taken out of our hands if this FTC rule goes through, because then we're just not even going to worry about or be able to worry about selling shareholders slash employees who hold less than 25% in the company. I think you will naturally have to spend more time on tailoring and customizing those provisions for larger shareholders if you want them to pass muster in the courts. I guess the question is, you could always try to get those in place for smaller shareholders. And when the time comes, do a cost-benefit analysis of if it's worth fighting in court if it gets challenged. I guess you could always try. But I think it's probably a better use of everyone's time to spend more time focusing on the particular terms of the covenants applicable to the senior executives or those larger selling shareholders. Just because if those are the folks you're really worried about and you're willing to spend funds litigating it, if it becomes an issue down the road, you want to do as much as that legwork up front. So you're not having to make that same cost benefit analysis determination at the time the executives or selling shareholders already competing, at which point it might be too late. And then talk a little bit about what you're seeing with return to work, which it sounds like all over the country, even in Texas, Richmond remains a very challenging issue for law firms. It's not as pervasive in markets like Richmond, where you have 10-minute commutes to work and not hour and a half commutes to work. But I'm straddling two lines here because as a millennial, one of the benefits coming out of the pandemic was that it finally shattered the assumption that working from home necessarily meant you were being less productive. If I was staying at home in 2018 to meet with someone who was coming to work at my house, I think the assumption probably was, well, Jim's not working very hard today. But going through the pandemic and a lot of law firms, ours included, having historically good years in terms of productivity while everybody was working from home, I do think that assumption was removed, which I think is a good thing. I think my issue is the mindset that being asked to return to the office is punitive. In my mind, I think it really is, if you have the right people also at the firm present with you physically, it can be a gift because I think you can do the work you're being asked to do at home. Absolutely. 
And I don't think, like I say, I don't think productivity is necessarily an issue there. I think what you miss out on by not being in the office is just the learning on the margins, kind of the tricks of the trade, the negotiations, the type of skills that the people you're working with, your mentors, senior associates and partners might not even know they're providing to you as a junior associate. It's just you're kind of observing and learning through osmosis. And that's, I think, a lot harder to do over the phone. I mean, seeing folks' faces is great on Zoom. You can pick up a little more body language that way, but you're still not able to mute the phone on a phone conversation and turn to someone else in your office and kind of explain what you're doing. My issue with it is that I don't subscribe to the notion that you have to return to the office because, well, you just do. And if the partial week model is the best we can do, that's better than nothing. But obviously, all of this only works if the partners are also in the office and the senior associates are also in the office and are willing to spend time mentoring associates and making those connections. Because if partners aren't coming in, by all means, stay at home because you're not getting that marginal benefit of informal training you can only get by watching other folks practice and helping you decide how you want to practice. So I think that's one thing I got. I've had great mentors here at Hunton and I learned a lot just by watching them practice law in their own unique way. And I don't know that you're getting that by working remotely, even though you can accomplish what you've been tasked with just fine. I think that'll get you through and that's great. But if you want to advance and get better and develop those softer skills, especially that you'll need going forward, it's really hard to replace the in-office experience. And I know that makes me sound curmudgeonly, but that's one thing I've noticed is that informal training is something worth protecting. And then finally, tell us a little bit about what you do outside of work. I have three children under 10. So my hobbies are more aspirational than actual in terms of practicing them. But you know, I play a lot of golf, play a lot of tennis. I caught the golf bug early. I started playing, I suppose it would have been a Monday in April of 1997. So the day after Tiger Woods won his first master's title, I was all in. So I played that when I was in middle school and still play it. So I've been playing for gosh, almost 25 years and I'm still terrible, but I still like to do it. Lately, I've shifted more towards playing tennis just because it takes less time than playing golf, kind of gets out that competitive itch that you might have without it taking five or six hours. And so that's been a lot of fun. It's also something I can play with my wife, which has been super great being able to spend that time together. And lately, have been coaching some of my kids' youth sports teams, just came off of a, well, we'll call them a middling 10-year-old basketball team season. But that's been really rewarding in its own way. What limited time I have outside of work, we try to spend with family. And if you're able to do that while mixing that with hobbies, that certainly makes things a bit easier for everybody. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. David, thanks so much for having me on. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus. Marcus.